Psalm 38, verses 1 through 8. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Thank you, Dylan. So it may seem a little strange to um, sing the song we just sung and then to read the text we just read, right? And so we sing the songs of hallelujah, um, and then we read this really description of death, right? Um, description of, of dying, the soul dying, the body dying. Um, how do those two things go hand in hand? That's, that's kind of the whole uh, paradox of the Lenten season, that these two things actually work really well together. In fact, that you, you cannot get to resurrection unless you go through death. Lent, um, in its first iterations, um, appeared in the early church as early as the, really the, the second century. Um, and in it, it was directly connected to Easter. Like, it wasn't quite the 40 days that we pull out um, right now. Like, most of the time, it was just a couple days before Easter, um, the Friday and the Saturday before Easter Sunday, or maybe even a, the whole week before Easter. Um, but the early church, especially, connected Lent not just to Easter Sunday directly, but connected it to baptism. Um, that this was a special time for the church. This was a time when those who were preparing um, to be baptized, those who were preparing to immerse themselves into life with communion with God, God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit, and with siblings, their brothers and sisters in Jesus, that this is when they were catechized. This word catechism, it means simply to be taught or instructed. And this kind of Lent was this connection, this special time of catechism, a special time of teaching and learning the realities of what we were baptized into, the, what we were immersed into in life with God and others. The Greek word uh, catechesis means literally to sound down. The idea is to learn precisely, to learn something deeply, intimately, to the very depths by sounds, by things spoken, by things sung, like psalms. Sounds of meaningful, nuanced repetition over and over again. Meaningful, nuanced repetition over and over again. The foundational truths of our life in God and with God. That's what it means to be catechized. In fact, Luke's gospel was written to, to give narratival and witness validation to a fellow follower's catechism, to what he had been taught. This is what Luke says. He says, it seems good to me to write an orderly account of Jesus' life, his followers' experiences, because Luke is writing not just the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts as well. For you, Theophilus, a fellow believer, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have catechized, you have been taught. To, so that you can know the narratival and experiential history of what it is that you have through the repeating of sounds 
and nuances over and over again has become the truth of who you are, who you've been baptized into. The Lenten season maintained this really close connection to baptism and to those, to the catechumen, that's those who are preparing uh, for life with God and others, until about the ninth century. By then, church and state, both on the Eastern Church and the Western Church, uh, really were all basically the same thing. Adult baptism had virtually disappeared from the life of the church, or at least went underground or out of state to to baptize. Um, uh, Adults seemed to be odd for the church at the time. And so entry into the family and state was through baptism of infants, right? This is kind of where these things came about in in our faith history. But this pre-baptismal kind of um, catechetical, I'm not saying the word right because I'm Texan, um, but this idea of being prepared and instructed, that character of Lent was basically replaced by maybe what most of us have thought of Lent, um, like we talked a little bit about last week, this kind of penitential, repenting focus and character of Lent. So at one time, early in the church's history, the idea that Lent is both a time to repent but also a time to be baptized into the fullness of life with God. Those things went hand in hand. But eventually, by the ninth century, it turned almost exclusively to this idea of penitence, to this idea of repentance, of turning from our sin to the Lord, and kind of devolved even in some days to penance, to, to trying to um, inflict self, um, self-wounds to some degree in order to um, pay for our own sins, or to at least demonstrate the severity of our um, of of our commitment to being against sin, right? And so as we as a faith family kind of move into making Lent more of our tradition in our history, as we learn it, as a lot of us are learning it, my encouragement is that we keep the connection to baptism. We, we don't just move into the penitent, because we're gonna get there in just a minute. We're gonna get into penance for the next few weeks, right? Like the Psalms that we're in, the penitential Psalms that we've been going through, are gonna lead us into this feeling the weight of our sin. But it's in the weight of the sin that's connected into this immersion into life with God that I think is super important. The, the connection to baptism in Lent instructs us through meaningful and nuanced repetition to move through the downward movement of the soul that happens in Lent into the baptismal waters of communion with Father, Son, and Spirit and siblings that allows the Lenten season then to be most instructive, informative, and transforming so that just like in baptism, we come out. Not so that we just go into the darkness, but that we come out of the darkness. That we're immersed into life. And and listen, it's a pretty amazing thing to be immersed into life, right? Psalm 32 educated us last week um, that when we come up from the depths of sin and brokenness, out of hiding and into the open air of forgiveness, We find ourselves immersed in life with God. We find ourselves in this place where we can breathe fully, sometimes for the first time, right? We're surrounded by him. We're immersed in him. We're hidden in him. We're preserved by him. We're surrounded by shouts of deliverance and loving embrace. This submersion, baptism in God is the life we live and the life that we lead now, right? This is the reality of our existence. A life in which God, with unobstructed embracing knowledge, of us instructs us, teaches us, counsels us in the way we should go. We are, as in the words of Malcolm Guyte, baptized and born in his mysterious and all-involving love, a love that lifts, a love that comforts and embraces us. It's a beautiful proclamation, right? 
of an identity and a reality to be baptized and born in an all-involving love. But the assumption of being lifted by such love is that we have been submerged, that we have gone down. In order to be lifted, we have to be down somewhere in order to be lifted up, right? For baptism, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, is not only an immersion in the life of God, in the all-involving love of God, but also in the death of Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? If we're baptized into the life with God, we're baptized into the death of Jesus. We were buried, you and I, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, Lynn is connected to baptism and Easter because death always precedes resurrection. It's the only way. It's the only way we get there. We've talked about this the last few weeks. The only way to get where we're going to life full and forever in Jesus, to live resurrected now and forever is through death. The pilgrimage of Lynn is a movement into death, a sounding down into the stings of death, to death's death, so that we might come out of the depths, be raised and lifted from sin's death into new life forever. It's a season to remember our own baptism, to remember that at one time we went under the waters into death and came out of the waters into life, into sounds and shouts of deliverance. We need the Lenten season to help us remember this, to prepare us to live Easter year round. Lent helps catechize us, teach us that the reality of sin is being covered and all our life is hidden in Jesus. We don't need to live trying to hide sin. We don't need to sulk as one's covered in the shadows of death. We can live free, though we're prone to forget that, right? I mean, aren't we? Like, we can live free. We, we're, we came out of the waters of death and we're into life, and yet at times we hide our sin because we feel ashamed. At times we sulk because of the brokenness and darkness of the shadows, and we don't live the freedom that Christ has given us. And so we need Lent. For as Alexander Schmiemann says, for even though we were baptized, what we constantly lose and betray is precisely that which we received at baptism. Easter is our return every year to our own baptism. Lent is our preparation for the return, the slow and sustained effort, the catechismum, the catechizing of us into new life in Christ. For each year, Lent and Easter are the rediscovery and the recovery by us of what we were made through our baptismal death and resurrection. Baptismal death and resurrection. A journey, a pilgrimage into the bright sadness. The Psalms of Lent um, that we've been going through um, reclaim this catechism type character of Lent. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but every Monday a psalm is written to you, um, to us from our faith family. And these are the penitential psalms. These are the six psalms that the church has used for a couple thousand years now to help us move through Lent. And each psalm, this sounding repetition, this nuanced repetition orally and homotically of this foundational truth allows us to move into death so that we might move into life. It, the first psalm set, us, set the course for Lent for us. The second gave us Lent's atmosphere. And today we move into really the struggle of Lent the entry into the tomb. Our pilgrimage, like our baptism, takes us under, takes us into death with Jesus, into the sadness, into darkness and shadows. We can't avoid it. 
We can't run from it. We can walk with Jesus and together through it. But this is the way that we're going. And there in the darkening is where we encounter Lent's struggle. A wrestle we have been prepared for, again, through the first two Psalms. We're not into it unwillingly or unknowingly. We know what's on the outs, the backside. We know where the pilgrimage ends, right? It's a pilgrimage. It's not just a travel. It's not just a jot. It's a pilgrimage. We know our destination. Still, we enter into something that takes our breath away, right? And knocks the wind out of us, the spirit out of us. When we start talking about sin and death and the way we feel it, letting our bodies feel the very draining of our souls. Our, our faith feels like the memories are stunted. Our silence feels like instead of an encounter with God, it feels like a distance from him, right? Psalm 38 helps us navigate this real struggle that at some point we're going to face if we're walking through Lent together. Maybe you'll experience it today in our time in Psalm 38. Maybe you've experienced it in some of the practices that we've been doing. But if we choose to follow Jesus into Lent, at some point we're going to get to this spot where we have to die. We have to enter the tomb. We have to wrestle with death, our own death, in order that we might, in Jesus' death, be raised. And Psalm 38 helps us navigate this rugged terrain, this terrain of our descent, if we choose to follow. Because the reality is, following Jesus through Lent is a choice. You don't have to do it. No one's making you do it. We don't have to choose to die with him at this moment. But here's the thing. At some point, the stings of death, sin, will choose for us. Something within us or in our world will drag us down into the pit, whether we're willing and ready or not at all, right? Like something at some point will bring us into this point of death. So Lent, by choosing to enter into Lent, to walk through the valley of the shadows of death with Jesus as our guide, we will be ever the more prepared for those unplanned jots, pilgrimages through the valleys and the shadows that are sure to come. So I invite you this morning to embrace the spiritual gravity of Psalm 38, to let it draw you into the tomb, into death, into struggle, so that we might be humbled and thus made ready to receive from God a fresh and joyous grace. I know that's very, um, that's heavy, right? There's, there's a heaviness to it, and that's kind of unexpected in church these days, right? But this is what I'm inviting you into, to embrace the movement of this psalm, to open ourselves, as we talked about last week, to be open before God so that we might be drawn into the place of death, to the death of Jesus, so that we might live again. So let me do this. Let's just, for just a second, let's be quiet. I'm gonna pray for us. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna read the psalm together. I'm gonna give a little context to the psalm. And then we're just gonna spend some time in some guided meditation through the psalm, right? Some through guided opportunity to listen and to hear and be moved by the Spirit into death and then again into life, okay? All right, pray with me. Father, we thank you that um, you give us an invitation to follow you through the shadows of the valley of death into the, so that we might sit by still waters, rest and graze in green pastures. 
Father, we long for that resting. But we know that we still journey through. So I pray over these next few moments that wherever we are, that we would be open to you, that your nearness would lead us, that your rod and your staff would comfort us, that we would not hide from ourselves or from you, but in these moments that we would be open to all that you might have for us, knowing that whatever might come up Whatever might be revealed, whatever might need to be put to death, Father, is so that we might have life and life forever with you. We pray these things expectant, hopeful, maybe even a little timid, but trusting in the one whose life was given for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, Psalm 38. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 38. And again, kind of quickly, I'm just going to walk through the psalm with us to give us a little bit of context to help us then as we spend a little bit of time meditating through it. So again, Psalm 38 kind of helps, helps prepare us for the terrain. It leads us through the terrain of recognizing of this choice of entering into to death. Again, whether the choice was made willingly or the choice was made circumstantially. We find ourselves at the, the, the precipice of death. Soul death, physical death. We find ourselves there. So how do we navigate down into it? Because listen, none of us want death, right? Like we all wrestle with death. We wrestle against it. We do everything in our world to not die, right? Like that's, that we exist not to die, right? Like we exist to live. And so like, so there's a natural fight against this, right? But we have to get there. We have to die. We have to enter the tomb if we're going to come back up on the other side, right? And Psalm 38 helps us as we navigate that. And it kind of, in doing so, it kind of gives us the ways in which we struggle, the ways in which we fight and wrestle with, with this death that we begin to feel. Because, I mean, at some point we kind of know it, right? And so here's how the psalm starts. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The psalmist feels, feels in this moment, that there is something unwhole in them. That something is against them, not working right. Their body, their soul, their mind is anxious and torn and, and being ripped, maybe fading. And the initial response is to assume that it's the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Because intuitively, to some extent, the psalmist knows like, that it must, they must have done something to, to, to get off course because the course of, of God is a course of life and not death, and yet they feel death. And so the plea at the very beginning is, Lord, don't destroy me. I feel like I'm being destroyed. I feel like I'm, I'm being ripped up. Please do not destroy me. That's the first plea, right? I mean, have you ever felt that way, like in your own life? where things seem to be going so wrong, whether that's an internal thing, like a soul thing, or that's an external thing, where it feels like you're fighting against the force of life itself, God himself, right? And so you know intuitively that fighting that force, you, you might be on the wrong side. If you're fighting the force of life, you might be on the wrong side. And so you please, Lord, don't destroy me in this. 
Don't, don't hold your anger against me. Don't discipline me in your wrath. So verse two, for your arrows have sunk into me. I feel like I'm being attacked by you and your hand has come down upon me. Your, that all-encompassing love that we talked about just a minute ago from last week's psalm, the embracing love feels more crushing than it does uplifting, right? Have you ever felt that way? In your own sin? In your own brokenness? In the difficulties of life? I mean, the, the, again, the, the psalmist assumes something. It assumes that we understand that when we feel death around us, inside of us, that's something against God. That something in us is against God, something around us is against God, and so we're at battle with God. His arrows are coming at us. His hand is crushing us. And so all the psalmist is doing is stating this feeling that they have that God is attacking because something is off, right? Something feels off, and the first response is that it feels off with God. Something feels off with God, right? How encouraging is it that our Psalms, the book that teaches us how to pray, teaches us to pray this way, to admit that we feel like God is attacking us, that we feel like our battle sometimes is with God. It's pretty freeing. It's pretty honest. But just as we talked about last week, this is a person who's not hiding anything from the Lord. Not just their own sin, but their own emotions and actions and thoughts of who God is and how God's acting, whether they're true or not. And so when we, when we begin to move towards death, an initial response almost always is to feel like we're fighting God or feel like that this is too much, that God wants too much from me, and that we can't do this, right? It's okay to admit that. It's okay to feel that. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist moves through that and keeps going. In verse three, it says, there's no soundness. Literally, the word is shalom. There is no wholeness or completeness or peace in my flesh. Like my life is being torn apart because of your indignation. Because of your indignation is this idea of justified anger. So again, the psalmist is moving from this, I feel like everything's off and I'm at battle against you, beginning to see like, hey, my whole life is being pulled apart. There's no wholeness and completeness because it's not right with you. And it's not right with you because you're justifiably angry. Because there is something not fully right in my life. There is something that isn't quite whole in my life. This kind of initial kind of pushback on God. It's a plea. It's a humble pushback, but it's a pushback. Results in the psalmist beginning to very slowly recognize that it's justifiable. That the Lord is is frustrated, angry for a reason. Because look at the, the second half of verse three. There is no health. It's a, it's a, it's the, the term health is like, it's, it's like shalom, but a little bit less, right? It's like shalom is this big, whole, full life, and health is this like ability to live into it, right? This kind of way to take my part in the big picture of shalom. There is no health in my bones because of what? Because of my sin. There's no health in my bones. There's no wholeness in me because of your indignation, God. But there's no health in me. There's no way for me to even experience peace. 
because of my sin. We have to get to a point where we begin to see what is off in us. To, to be ones who, again, don't hide the reality that we're sinners. But here's the thing, once we start to admit that we're sinners, we begin to kind of struggle with ourselves, Right? Like, look at the next part of the psalm in verse four. It says, for my iniquities. So the psalmist has admitted, has recognized, has embraced the reality that the lack of wholeness and health that he is experiencing, the psalmist is experiencing, comes from his own brokenness, his own living off and out of the mark, off the path. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head. They, they've surrounded me, engulfed me. I've gone under them, been immersed under them. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. I can't stand to feel the weight of my own sin. Have you ever been there? Where your own sin feels so, so weighty that you feel like there's no way to get out of it. There's no way to overcome this. There's no way I can be forgiven for this. There's no way out of what I'm in. This is the beginning of death, right? There's no, there's no way out of this. I'm covered in it. It's too heavy for me. Verse five, my wounds stink and fester. My wounds stink and fester. This, this lack of wholeness in me smells like death. Smells like death. The wounds fester and stink. Because of what? My foolishness. The root word of foolishness is evil. Because of my wrong way of living because of my way out of step with God, I begin to smell like death. Not life. For my, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. I'm laid down. I'm unable to move, right? Like I've fallen, just like dead people do, unless you watch The Walking Dead. All the day I go about mourning. All the day I go about in a state of, in a state of mourning, which is like a state of like mourning again in the context of the, the psalm is like this. I am, I go around in a state of sadness about death. Mourning. We mourn when someone dies. We mourn at the loss of things. I go about in this constant state of loss. For my sides are filled with burning. Literally, my, my insides are being shrunken by heat. They're dried up, just as the insides of a carcass would dry up from lack of life flowing through them. And there is no, again, soundness, no shalom, no wholeness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the torment, the chaos, the disquietness of my heart. As we move into Lent, we will experience these pangs of death, the struggle of death within us. Sin does, is death. It destroys. It doesn't bring life. It feels disgusting, hurtful, draining, crushing, sad. Those are all normal things that we should feel as our sin comes to light. Those are appropriate things to experience as our sin comes to light in the presence of God, right? That's where we started. 
where the psalmist start? In the presence of the Lord, speaking with the Lord, in communion with the Lord. It's okay to feel those things. In fact, we have to feel those things. We have to feel the anguish of our sin. That's a part of it dying. But it feels like we're dying, not just our sin, right? That's what the psalmist's point is. It doesn't just feel like my sin's dying. It says, I'm dying because of my sin. My iniquity, my foolishness, my transgressions. That I'm dying because of what I've done. And so we wrestle with ourselves. We tend to, at this pace, I think a lot of us get stuck. We wrestle with the weight of our sin. What have, look at what I've done. Look how I've wasted away. Look at all that has been taken from me. And we don't know how to get out of it, right? But luckily for us, again, Psalm 38 is teaching us, training us, that this is not the last step of us moving into the tomb, right? There's still more. So what does he say in verse 9? Verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my heart pants, groans. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. At the end of this struggle with God and with self is the psalmist beginning to recognize this is death. My, my desires are before you, Lord. You know I don't want to die. I don't want this to be the state that I'm in all the time, where all the time I'm feeling the angst of my sin, the burning of my sin, the destruction of my life because of my sin and foolishness. That's not where I want to be, Lord. You know that. But I have nowhere else to go. My heart pants. It throbs like it's going to explode. And then my strength fails. I have a heart attack. <laughs> my strength fails. My body's not able to move anymore. My eyes, the way that I can see you face to face, the way I can see forward, I don't even know where to go. I'm in utter darkness now. I'm in the tomb. I've had a heart attack and I've been in the tomb. And Lord, but I know you know I desire life, right? How do we get out of this kind of movement from the struggle with God as we begin to see that the struggle with, is not with God, but is with our own sin? How do we move from this struggle with sin and the sin in us and our sin? We recognize that God knows our longing for life, but then we accept death. And listen, we don't like to accept death. And so at this point, we usually want somebody to help us out of death, right? And that's what verse 11 is. My friends and my companions, my beloved, stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off from me. Those who we think should save us, should be able to save us, should want to save us, can't draw us out of this. The church can't draw us out of this. The practices of faith can't draw me out of this. Those things which I have leaned on, those relationships that have been life to me are no longer able to save. It's utterly death, right? As much as Lazarus' sisters wanted him to come from the tomb, they couldn't bring him out of the tomb. As much as they longed for him, they couldn't get close to him and to bring back life to him, right? None of us can bring each other out of this. We can walk with each other into it, but we can't bring each other out of it. I know that's hard to hear, right? Because we talk a lot about how we're walking with each other, we're helping one another, all those kind of things. But here's the reality. It's not my death you're baptized into. 
It's Jesus's. I don't get to save you. Jesus saves you. The church doesn't save you. Jesus saves you, brings you out of it. And at some point, we've got to deal with that, right? Not just with our own sin, but that no one except Jesus can get us out of this. No one except God can bring us out of the tomb. And sometimes that's kind of painful because really what we want is we want somebody to help us, but they can't help us. As much as we want their help, and as much as we think that they can't help us, as much as they even want to give it, they can't. They're not supposed to. That's not how it works. And that's a struggle, right? And at that struggle, in the midst of that struggle, we begin to realize this, that if the ones that are close to us can't save us, then something is against us, right? Verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. This is the psalmist. I think two things are happening. One, the psalmist is beginning to experience Sheol, hell, right? The, the pangs of, of, of sin in the midst of the tomb. Because the idea of Sheol in Scripture isn't just a place of separation from God and anguish. It's also a place where you're being hunted by a devouring prey. Where something is trying to take your life. And it feels like, the psalmist feels like somebody, something is trying to take his life. Now our tendency sometimes is to start looking at people around us and letting them, like blaming them for taking our life. Right, but the psalmist, the psalmist won't let us get there. We'll, we'll, I'll explain why in just a minute. But you can see why it comes in this relationship, right? In this connection with their struggle with those who we think should be able to help us who can't. Who kind of begins to feels like they won't. But then we begin to recognize that, hey, listen, something is after my life. Something is keeping life from me. It's not just that my sin is leading to death, but something is trying to keep actively keep life from me to grab me and keep me in this place of death. To keep me in this place of death. And so then what does the psalmist do? What do you think the psalmist should do before we read the next verse? Do you think the psalmist should fight? Do you think the psalmist should go and fight those who are fighting him for life, for his own life? I mean, we're Americans, that's what we think, right? Like, if we're honest. Like, we want to fight. We want to fight the, those who want to keep us in death, those who are against us, right? But here's what the psalmist does. In verse 13, where we would think the psalmist would fight, the psalmist says, I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. I've become the living dead. I die. I'm alive. There's still something, there's still life, but I'm not listening anymore. I'm not trying to speak my way out of this. I just accept that I'm dead. That's it. That's what the psalmist does. At the end of the struggle, at the end of the struggle, there's no fight left. Verses nine and 10, right? I've had the heart attack, I've laid down. 
I can't see. My heart doesn't beat. It aches. Maybe there's a little bit of a flutter, but I have no strength. I can't move. I'm already flat. My eyes can't see. My ears can't hear. My mouth can't speak. So what am I? I'm dead. That's where the struggle ends. That's the end of the struggle. That's where the struggle leads us to that place where we're not fighting anymore. Where we don't fight God and we don't fight others and we don't fight even our own sin. We don't fight. We just die. Which, again, sounds so counterintuitive, right? So against everything that we're taught as humans just to live, right? Not just to mention our own culture, right? But this is where the psalmist leads us. And then he gives us our one and only action. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. For you, O Lord, do I wait. Do I hope? That's actually, it's an idea of a waiting with an expectation, a hopeful expectation. Not just a, I'm just sitting here, twiddling my thumbs, but like I am waiting with at least a glimmer of hope. And we'll see that it's only a glimmer at this point. For you, O Lord, my God, will answer. Even though I'm deaf and dumb and unable to speak and all these kind of things, I know at some point you will speak life, right? Because what is the word of God? It's life. At some point, God, you will say life. You will answer life. That I die with hope. I die and wait. But then, and here's the beauty of verse 16. If it, was, if it just left there at 15, we would be, okay, great. We just let, die and we like, have, have this hope. But there's this little prayer in 16 that's awesome. So we don't just wait, we pray. And here's what we pray in verse 16. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. His, his prayer is not for a full resurrection. His prayer is just like, hey, like, don't, don't let me fully die. But I'm, let me have just a little bit of life. It's, a, it's kind of a weak prayer. Like weak in the sense of from a place of weakness. Like, Lord, I don't, even, I don't even want the life I had before. I don't want to succeed and be lifted up. I just don't want to be a fool or let those who are after foolishness rejoice. That's all I want. Not a life that was before. Not a life that I think and I envision that I see as grandeur, but just a life that's not foolishness and that the foolish can boast over. Something that you want, right? That's what the prayer is. It, it's prayer for resurrection. It's just resurrection not in our own image. Resurrection into something new, something else, something other. And listen, admittedly in the psalm, it's a weak prayer. It's like I can't even, I can't even articulate it fully. I just, I just, like this last little breath, just give, give me life again, different. Give me a life where I, I'm not a fool. And then it's almost like in this last pr- breath of prayer that the psalmist fully dies in verse 17. For I am ready to fall. It's like in the waiting, in the, the, the admitting of waiting that I'm gonna wait for you, I'm gonna wait for you to speak life and speak life that's, that's different than the life that I have, this kind of like last breath out. Verse 17 is this acceptance fully of death. 
the entering fully into the tomb. And it's a confession. For I am, not, I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. In the, in the Hebrew, it's I am in anguish, anxious about my sin. I'm not just sad that I did it. It's like I recognize its deplorableness. And listen, this is all that death is, right? That the psalmist's acceptance of death is simply to confess that they're ready to die and to feel the anxiousness of their sin. This unsettledness of sin. And listen, here I think in the Psalms, at that moment, just like as we saw in Psalm, Psalm 32, there's not a gap. Like it moves directly into the first signs of life. Because <laughs> here's what the psalmist says after in verse 19. But my foes are vigorous. In other words, my foes are alive. Vigorous just means alive. I'm dead, but my foes are alive. I'm dead, but my foes are alive. They, have, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me, right? I feel the weight of all the things around the anxious of my sin. I feel the weight of everything that seems like it's alive, but against me. But then notice what the psalmist says, wrongly, fraudulently. In this kind of exposure, in this confession of sin, the psalmist begins to see himself rightly. Remember what we talked about in Psalm 32? Remember the movement? How do we breathe? What was the breathing practice that we did last Sunday? I am forgiven. My sin is covered. My transgressions are not held against me. It's like the psalmist begins to take that first breath of new life. My enemies are, I'm dead. My enemies are, are living, but they're against me wrongly. I, I'm, I'm right and righteous. Not, not, not because he didn't sin, but because something else is happening, right? Like the Lord is answering. The Lord is forgiving. The Lord is covering. The Lord is bringing life. Again, admittedly, in the, in the, in the depths, this seems like a kind of um, a weak prayer, right? Like a weak admission. But, but you begin, as just you see the very little tip, the very beginning of life. Because he says in verse 20, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after the good. He's beginning to see himself in right relationship with God, righted by God. This is new life. This is resurrection. He's beginning to see resurrection even in himself. It's amazing how at the place of confession and openness before the Lord, we begin to see life on the other side. Even if it feels like we're still in the middle of death, right? His foes are vigorous. He's dead. His foes are vigorous. Alive. And then we have, in verses 21 and 22, a proclamation. This still sounds like a plea. Still sounds like a prayer. But it's really, again, the first breath of new life. Where the psalmist says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord my salvation. I see life on the other side. I believe life is coming, even though I feel dead. 
Now, the psalm doesn't get us all the way out of the tomb. It's because we still got a couple more rotations in the tomb to go. If you follow the psalm, the penitential psalm, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, but we'll get there. But we have to get there going this way. We have to get there going through the struggle of death to a place where we actually die, to where we accept our death so that we begin to see just a little bit the spring of life. Just little springs on the first day of spring to fill that. So here's what we're gonna do. For the next few moments, we're gonna walk through the psalm quietly. We're gonna let ourselves meditate on the psalm. We've got, we've got, we've got time. We've got about 15 minutes before we, we kind of conclude our time together and we get to eat together. So let's not waste it. Let's take advantage of the quiet. And let's listen. Let's meditate on this journey that we're being invited into. So here's what I want you to do. If you're new with us, we do this all the time. Um, and it's okay if you feel a little uncomfortable, but we just invite you to, to participate with us as you feel led. We're gonna ask you to do one of two things. Close your eyes or look down at the ground. This just helps you be in a spot, in a stillness and quiet with the Lord, with others. If your attention can be on either your feet or eyes closed. And as you sit quietly, Breathe in with me that prayer that we learned last week from Psalm 32. God does not hold my guilt against me. Acclimate to the atmosphere of Lent. Even as we're following Jesus into the tomb. And now listen. I'm gonna reread the Psalm one time. And when I do, I want you to listen for the Spirit to give you focus on one part of the psalm. In these moments, these that I'm talking right now, just ask the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to give you a portion of the psalm to focus on. An area of struggle. Struggles end. Your only action, an honest confession, or the birth of new life. Wherever the Spirit leads you, Wherever it resonates in your heart as the spirit, as his words are read, just sit there in it. So if you have a copy, you might want to open it up at some point after you hear the words, but I'll read it through. And then we'll be quiet for a few minutes as you listen. And then we'll move into a time of reflection and response. Hear this prayer for you. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds, they stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness, no wholeness, no peace in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult, the disquietness of my heart. 
Oh Lord, all my desire is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Father, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. There are those who seek my life, and they lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt and speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like one who is mute, who does not open their mouth. I have become like one who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. For you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. My prayer, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Oh, but the foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after the good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. For just a moment, sit in this psalm, listening for where the Spirit might have you focus. Still quiet, eyes down or eyes closed. Why do these words or phrases resonate with your spirit right now? For just a minute or two, as you've heard, as you felt the spirit lead you to a part of the psalm, why do they resonate? Why that part? Why now? Just ask and listen.
going to read the psalm one more time. This time, as I read it, as you, you can continue in reflection, you can continue listening, but also consider how you might respond. What do you want to say to God? At the end of the psalm, how would you like to respond? With a plea, a confession, a proclamation? How are you being led to respond to this psalm? Listen one more time as the psalmist prays for us. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no wholeness or peace in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones, no life because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Submerged me like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds, they stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness, no wholeness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the disquietness of my own heart. Oh Lord, all my desire for life is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and beloved stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Oh, those who seek me, they lay snares. And those who seek my, um, my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like one who's deaf. I do not hear. Like one who's mute, who does not open the mouth. I become like one who does not hear, in whose mouth there are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. I only pray, let them not rejoice over me and boast against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But oh, the foes are vigorous and alive. They are mighty and many. Those who hate me, but hate me with wrong. Those who render me evil for good, accuse me, because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. For just one minute, respond. Say what you want to say to God.
I practiced in Lent um, of entering into these psalms, we're taught to listen, to reflect, to respond, but to not let our response be the last, but rather to let our rest be where we conclude. Resting in our baptism, and the truth that you are born in his mysterious and all-involving love, a love that lifts us from the depths and comforts and embraces us. The, psalm, the same psalmist who wrote this psalm said in another, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, where we are right now, the place of darkness, the land of the devouring beast, the grave, there you are. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Pray with me. Father, I pray as we continue over these next few weeks together in our own times of quiet, in the midst of our, whether those times be dedicated times or whether those times be found in the midst of work and life, as we enter into the tomb, purposely choosing in this moment to enter into death, the death of death, Jesus' death, that we might rest in the truth that we cannot flee from you, that even here in the place of Sheol, you are there. Even here, your hand shall lead us and your right hand shall not crush us, but hold us fast. Thank you that because of Jesus this is the only death that we really die death to sin death to death that we might live in his name